0: Make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 today. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. And as we look at this chapter, or not chapter, but five verses, um, being at the conference was interesting. There was uh, sort of a a challenge issued by one of the speakers, and he's a speaker I've heard before, and I've heard him issue this challenge, but he said, kind of like articulate who you are as a leader and make that clear to the people around you. And I thought when I heard it the first time, I should do that. And then I didn't. And um, as we were sitting there, I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. And so I kind of jotted down a little statement. And and basically, you know, as a leader, I am somebody that loves to encourage and empower others and then guide my leaders to do the same thing. And I think that that's who we want to be as a leadership team at Hilltop. We want to encourage each other to be awesome and empowered in the areas of ministry that God has given each person, but then also invite you into that as well. And I think what's neat is you see somebody like Sean in an elder position and then taking up leading worship. And there's so many people that are doing that throughout the congregation. And I think to a certain degree, I want to acknowledge you as volunteers and what you do each and every week, um, week in, week out. You, you take kind of the areas of ministry that God has given you and the the spirit Spirit of God guiding you, and you, you're doing amazing things throughout the congregation. And then I guess the next thing I would say is if you're not doing that, we really want to invite you to figure out what are your gifts um, that God has given you, and how could you be using those to bless people around you? And as leadership, how could we empower you to use them? Um, and so that's something that I really do think we want to be about here at the church. The other thing that I, I realized as we listened to these different speakers is... The, the manner in which they share the scriptures is not the same way that I do. Um, the typical way that we saw at the conference was one or two verses and a lot of storytelling. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just not how I approach the scriptures or teaching. Um, what I want to do is I want to expose to you what's going on within a letter that's been given to a church or an Old Testament book that was written to a people um, and, and and let you know what does the scripture say on, on different things. And what that's going to force us to do is one, it's going to force us to take on some topics that... You might dodge otherwise, right? Um, And so one of those topics is kinda this morning. I'm gonna talk to you about being exalted through suffering. Um, last week, we talked about the doctrine of rewards, and I think that was a little bit confusing for some people because maybe you've never heard it before. Um, and so I, I really do want to share with you what does the Scripture have to say, and and I don't want to dodge the hard topics. I want to dive into the hard topics or whatever the Scripture has to say to us. We just want to let it speak. We want to let the Word of God speak to us as individuals and guide us to make different decisions in our lives even, maybe even especially, on the hard topics. Um, And so I will share stories with you from time to time, but I have to admit, I'm not a great storyteller. Um, I have a couple jokes here and there, but I'm not a comedian. What I really wanna do is I really wanna make sure that you understand what the Word of God has to say to you And wherever you're at, you might be here this morning and you've made no decision to follow Jesus and you're you're searching. He has something to say to you this morning about how to be saved and how to go from darkness and into light. How to go from feeling broken to a sense of wholeness that he wants to give you. Um, Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but you've got some areas of sin that you're entangled in and you can't get freedom. He has something for you. Uh, maybe you've been following Jesus and you're experiencing a lot of victory over sin, but you're wondering, what's next? Where should I, what, sh- what does God want me to do next? He has something for you. Maybe you've been serving in ministry for a long time and you're wondering, you know, who, who do, who do, how does God want me to take next steps and kind of be looking around the room saying, I wonder who he wants me to invite into this ministry with me. Um, wherever you're at this morning, God has something to say to you from the scriptures. And so I pray that you would hear that. Um, the question I have for you this morning is, do you believe, um, do you believe that you have power in life? Um, do you feel powerless? Um, are there situations where you feel like you have power and, and you have victory, but there are situations where you feel powerless? Um, what I want to show you is that the one who held all, who holds all of the power, all of the authority, he has done something amazing for us um, in that he suffered on our behalf. He tasted death. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He tasted death for us so that we could be victorious in life. And so let me pray, and then I'll, I'll read these verses with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to this earth. We thank you that in eternity past, you knew that our sin would become a roadblock between the two of us, and you sent Jesus to crush that roadblock, to open up the door, to make a way for us to have relationship with you. We thank you for who your son is. He's the amazing God of the universe in human flesh. He has joined us in our humanity and overcome all of our brokenness all the places where we've sinned, all the places where we've failed, all the places where we've used the gifts that you've given us wrong, Jesus succeeded in all of those places. He takes us out of being a part of broken humanity in Adam and he joins us to your family and makes us his co-heirs. This is just amazing things that you've done for us and so let us remember who your son is and what he's done. Let us also not forget what your son has promised to return and do and complete. We, we look forward to that. Uh, give us each what we need to hear this morning as your spirit is alive and present in all of our minds, all of our hearts, and guide us to take steps of faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read these verses with me, five through nine. It says that for he, that's God, has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than angels for a short time, and you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered. Now, verse 9 is fairly easy to follow. That's what Jesus has done for us. Verses 5 through 8, everybody got those down perfect? You don't need any explanation? Um, I, I will tell you that this is a passage, a lot of times preparing messages, I can, that's uh, a familiar passage or it's a familiar subject, and I can get them done, done in a relatively short amount of time. This is one that I had to spend more time on, and so I want to just share, this is, this is a little bit more of a complicated passage, and so we'll go through it kind of slow. He says, for he is not subjected to angels, that's God subjecting to angels, the world to come that we are talking about. So the author of Hebrews, he's assuming that you and I have a certain understanding of biblical truth. Uh, The author of the book of Hebrews is assuming that you and I understand that in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. He said to rule it, to subdue it, to be fruitful, and to multiply He gave, God has all authority, but he said, I'm going to delegate some of it to humanity. I'm going to give some of it to Adam and Eve, and I want humanity to subdue the earth, to rule the earth, to be good stewards of the earth, to bless the earth, to be image bearers of God across the earth, and to fill it with goodness. That was what God gave to humanity. We also know that that dominion was lost. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve. They're deceived by the serpent, the serpent of old being Satan. They fall into sin. They agree with the lie. They just try to determine truth and, and uh, good and evil for themselves. And because of that, they lose their place. And what's interesting is the dominion that they lose, it doesn't just go nowhere and it doesn't go straight back to God. Where it goes is actually to the one who deceived them to fallen angelic beings, to Satan. Satan actually stole from Adam and Eve the dominion that God gave to them in the Garden of Eden. And so we call Adam, we call Satan the little g, God of this world. And so the world system follows what he wants it to follow. It is broken and corrupt because he is the one leading it. Right? And that's what we see within the scriptures: is that God gave dominion to to man; that dominion was lost, and it was lost to, in particular, Satan and his fallen angelic beings. And we now live in a world with a world system that does not honor God and actually has not your and I best in mind, which is what God's design was. God's design was: this is what's best for humanity and for the earth. And when Satan takes control, it's no longer about what's best for humanity and for the earth; it's about enslaving humanity. And we see the destruction of the earth, right? Those are the things that we see because of the fall, and there's much more, but those are two of the things that we see because of the fall. Now Christ when he went to the cross, it says in Colossians 2:15 that Christ disarmed the principalities and powers at the cross. When Paul uses those two words, principalities and powers, he's talking about Satan and his fallen angels. And so here's the picture to kind of think of in your mind. Stop looking at the screen. Look at me. Here's the picture to think of in your mind is that we were once formed under God in his family and he gave to us dominion to rule the earth. When we rejected him, we found ourselves not ruling ourselves and the earth, but ruled by a different spiritual being. Instead of being ruled by our maker and our creator, we are now shackled by Satan right? That's what happens to us. What Christ did when he died on the cross is he stepped into the rebellious kingdom and he died on our behalf so that we would be freed from the chains and brought back into his kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God right now is about. It's about being transferred out of the kingdoms of this world that is ruled by a fallen fallen angelic being, Satan, and being redeemed, bought back out of that and transferred into God's kingdom. Are you tracking with me? That's what God has done for us. When Christ died on the cross, he disarmed what Satan had against us. Satan said, I've got this against you, and I've got this against them. And they've sinned, and they've rebelled, and they've signed up for it, and they they, they rejected you. And the only way for them to get out of this situation is death. And Jesus steps in and says, I got it. I'll die for them. And I will set all of the captives free. The Chronicles of Narnia tells this so well. Right? If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it tells it so well with so much great imagery. But that's what C.S. Lewis was envisioning for us in the Chronicles of Narnia, was when, was when Aslan, or Christ dies, he frees all of those captives. He pays the debt, he deals with it so that we can be brought into that other family. And so Christ has disarmed the principalities and powers at the cross. And so now, as followers of Jesus, we have new roles of delegated authority from God. Um, and we could talk about those in more detail, but if you look at the scripture the principles of headship show up over and over again The Christ is the head of the church And the husband is the head of the family that Christ is the head of the church And he's delegated authority to elders and then those elders delegate authority And then there's a pastor and a teacher and so there's there's this delegated authority structure within the New Testament right be it a family or a, or a church um, within the Old Testament, God took authority and he would delegate it to a king, right? He would take that authority and he would delegate it to a king. What did the kings of Israel and Judah do over and over again? They had a direct line to God as his Um, emissary upon the earth and instead of going to God and listening to him, they went to foreign nations who were ruled by satanic beings and then brought the false gods into the temple and worshipped it instead of God and what does God do? He says, this isn't my house I'm out of here and so that's something we should watch out for in our own lives that we don't find ourselves going instead of I have this direct line to God, let me talk to him we go, you know, I wonder what the political party says I wonder what the philosophy says. I wonder what the culture says. I wonder what the, no, I've got a direct line to God through his word and his spirit and prayer. Why would I wander over here? I have full access to all truth all the time through my relationship with Jesus Christ. I wonder what Oprah says. Like, why are we doing this? (laughs) And I know Oprah's cliche, but we do it. This is wiggling around, I apologize. But what Jesus will do in the end is he will return and de- defeat Satan in a final series of battles. If you were with us for the book of Revelation 19, there's the battle of Armageddon. 20, there's the battle where he binds Satan, right? And then he destroys him once and for all. Um, Christ will rule in his kingdom and forevermore. When we talk about his kingdom, again, there's a spiritual element to this now that I am living in Carson City, Nevada, or Minden, or Dayton if you drove that far, um, I'm living here in in northern Nevada, and I'm a citizen of the city that I live in, and the state that I live in, and the country that I'm a part of. I live here, but all of this is broken because it doesn't recognize God as its head, right? All of it's broken because it doesn't recognize God as its head, so I live here, but I live here right? I have feet and a body in northern Nevada, but I live as a citizen of heaven, right? And so this is an interesting thing that that happens to the Jewish people. They're exiled and they find themselves in Babylon, right? And what does God say through Jeremiah? He tells him to hate Babylon, no. He tells him to plant gardens, to build his house, to be a blessing to Babylon. He tells him to be essentially a tree of life within the dead. And so that's, that's what God says through Jeremiah, that though we live in Babylon, we're to be a blessing to it. And so I have this calling from God to be a citizen of his heaven, but I am an exile on this earth here to bless it and proclaim a kingdom that is so much better. Got it? Pretty cool. And so Christ will return and his kingdom, he will rule from his kingdom. Uh, And when we talk about that, we're talking about a thousand year reign from Jerusalem, and then he will reign forevermore in the eternal state. So these are things that the writer of the book of Hebrews is assuming you know. Did you know all that? He's assuming you knew it. He is not subjected to angels the world to come because the world that we live in now is subjected to angelic beings. And so when Christ took on flesh, he was made lower than angels for a while. And then we see the the world to come that we are talking about. And so that's the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. What's the differences between the world that we live in now and the world that is to come? I'll I'll explain that more when we get into verses 8 and 9. I hope you're getting a little bit of a picture of it already. But the other thing that's interesting is he says, as we've gone through the first 25 verses or so of the book of Hebrews, he says, we've been talking about the world to come. I read that and I went, I don't know if I knew that. But his context for telling us what he was telling us about Jesus, putting the enemies underneath his foot, um, exalting him to this place on high, those are things that he's talking about the world to come. Verse six, seven, and the beginning of eight, he says, but someone somewhere has testified. And if you read that and go, look, the author of Hebrews didn't know where the verse was. I don't have to either. Um. You're funny um, because it's good to know your Bible. It's good to know chapter and verse. It's good to know where to go to find out about spiritual warfare. It's good to know where to learn about uh, uh, what Jesus says in the Gospels. It's good to know these things. And actually, what's interesting is the writer, he then quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he quotes it perfectly. So he wasn't like, I guess I'll try and tell you what it says. He says exactly. Okay, someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. That's from Psalm 8. And if you were to go back and read Psalm 8, you would see that it sounds like it's talking about humanity's place within creation and, intent, and that was intended that we would have dominion. That's what it sounds like it's talking about. And I think it is. It's talking about how God created humanity and that he wanted us to rule the earth and how he wanted us to rule the earth and, and the way that he wanted us to do that. What the writer of Hebrews does is he says, this is talking about Jesus and you didn't know it. Um, that this psalm is pointing to Jesus' messianic role as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, who would rule and reign, but it's also pointing to eschatological or in-time events um, that are going to take place upon Jesus' final return. He draws these things out to us, that Jesus was made lower for a little while, but then he's going to be crowned with glory and honor, and everything will be subjected to his feet. So Jesus not only saves humanity, but acts as man should have from the start. The dominion that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden was surrendered to fallen angels. We've talked about that. Jesus will restore this to humanity upon his return. And as I just shared, he's restored some of it now, okay? Um, And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we see that the kingdom of God is not yet, everything is in subjection to Christ. That's what he says. He says, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subject to him. So he's saying when Christ died and rose from the dead, um, everything is in subjection to him, but not yet. And so the question is, if everything is not yet in subjection to Christ, am I? Right? If, If everything will be, but it's not yet, am I? Are you? Have you taken your life and arranged it under Jesus Christ? Have you said, you are my lead, you are my head, I am following you, right? I'm not following myself, I'm not following the ways of this world, I'm not allowing satanic pressure to move me to do what the world around me is doing, but instead I'm submitting myself to Jesus as my head. He is the one who is leading me, he is the one who is number one in my life, Everything's not yet in subjection to Christ, am I? Have you taken your life and said, here's what I do on a given week. Does Monday look like Jesus is in charge? Does Tuesday look like Jesus is in charge? Does Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Does my life look like Jesus is in charge? Or does it look like the world is in charge does it look like my flesh is in charge what does it look like and if I were to see the deeds of the flesh Galatians chapter 5 give give Galatians chapter 5 a read later on today and look at the deeds of the flesh you're gonna go not me not me not me Ooh, me when my flesh is in control it does that I don't want that I want the fruit of the spirit Uh, And so God, will you reveal to me like like lights on a dashboard? I've had a flat tire for like since before winter, but I keep refilling that thing. There's a nail in it. I know right where it is. I need to make it down to the tire shop, but I just keep refilling that thing and the light keeps coming up on the dashboard, low pressure. And I'm like, eventually I'll deal with that. In the meantime, I'm just going to give it a little air. And that's kind of what we do with sin, isn't it? I'm not actually going to go remove the nail. I'm just going to kind of put it on life support again. We need to get down and deal with it and say, God, remove it. Take it away. And not that the deeds of your flesh or the impulses that you have are going to go away. They're, They're things that we will struggle with all of our lives. But what happens is day by day, bit by bit, more and more, I find myself in subjection to Christ as his spirit leads me. Everything is not yet in subjection to Christ, am I? Uh, we see that the kingdom of God is an, is already inaugurated, but not yet consummated. Um, it's already going to happen. It already is happening, but it's not yet all the way happening. It's an already, but not yet. Um, and so Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in a place of all dominion and authority. But the world that we live on is not recognizing that, is it? And so it's an already, but not yet. He already has established his kingdom. It's already present among us, right? When you read the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about what ideal behavior in the kingdom looks like, we can find that here on earth, can't we? But the new heavens and the new earth will know nothing but that. And so it's already, but not yet. Let me show you how this plays out in our lives. As if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are already redeemed. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. But we are not yet redeemed. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed for the day of future redemption. I'm already redeemed, purchased by his blood, but I await the consummation of the redemption. I wait, it's fulfillment. It's almost like some of these things are a little bit on layaway, right? They're ours, and God has purchased them, but we're not fully in possession of them yet. We're already sanctified to the church in Corinth, and those who are sanctified, that means set apart or made holy, called saints, that literally means holy ones, And all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord, or excuse me, on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. And so we're already sanctified. It's a past tense, done deal. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified, set apart, marked out as his, and you are a holy one, a saint. But I'm not yet sanctified. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming future of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls you, he, he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. And that's a great promise, right? Because the not yet of the already doesn't depend on me. He will do it. I can trust him. Already saved, for you've been saved by God's grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift. I'm not yet saved. How much more then, since we have been justified, made right, by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Upon Christ's return, and he pours out wrath upon the earth through the bowl and trumpets and all those different judgments that we read in the book of Revelation, that wrath that he pours out, we will be saved from it through him. And so I'm already saved, I'm already justified, I'm already made right in God's sight, I'm being sanctified, conformed into the image of his son, and upon Christ pouring out of his wrath upon the earth one final time, I will be saved from it through him. I'm already raised. He also raised you up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That is my position in Christ. I am seated with him in the heavenly places, but here I am in front of you, right? For the trumpet will sound. I'm not yet raised for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible without any issues, any problems, any sin. And will we be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at future, the last trumpet. I'm already raised. I'm not yet raised. I have been born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, we must be. I've been born again into his family by his grace. I'm in his family. I'm born again. I'm spiritually alive. I was once spiritually dead. We are, we are body, soul, and spirit. The body is decaying and will be replaced completely. The spirit was dead When I was in Adam and when I became in Christ, my spirit was quickened and made alive and I can understand things about God that I never could before because he has granted me the grace to do so, right? You know this is true if you're a Christian. Somebody talks to you about the Bible and you'd be like, nonsense, that's so dumb. Why would you believe that? Maybe there's some good moral things in there, but why would I go for that? And then when the spirit of God woke you up And he showed you what's right and what's true. Now you go to the scripture and you're like, I can't get enough. There's just so much truth here. And there's so many things that when I read it as a a non-believer, I didn't get it. And now the Spirit of God is showing me things that I didn't understand before and so I'm just so hungry for more of this. I'm already raised, but I'm not yet raised because this body that I live in, sin dwells within it. It has the drive and the capacity for sin. It, It can and it wants to. And if I let my flesh have control, I will sin. But if I'm in subjection to Christ and allowing his spirit to lead me, I find a whole different way of living. I'm already, but not yet. And so we need Jesus. Uh, There's the stuff that is and the stuff that will be. And what makes all of that possible is we do see Jesus. And I have that one there to remind me to tell you, this is the first time Jesus is spoken of by name in the book of Hebrews. We do see Jesus made lower than angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And so here's the question. Has the greatness of Christ defeated your inadequacy? Because the greatness of Christ has defeated the inadequacy of Adam, or man in the Hebrew. Christ has defeated it. He has done all the things that we in our broken, fallen humanity could not do. We were slaves to sin, shackled to a master who wanted to destroy us. Christ stepped in and broke the chains so that we could be freed into his family and kingdom. We were underneath a certificate of death, we had a debt that was due that we could only pay by giving our blood, by dying. And Christ stepped in and died for us, paid it off, marked it paid in full, and transferred us into his kingdom, debt-free. Sin will never be spoken of again. Hallelujah. He's done these things. Let me show you how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. and He's talking about the resurrection in particular. But he says, just as, the, excuse me, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so go back to this with me one more time. The, the theologians call it federal headship. And the idea is that I have a representative and I follow in his image, okay? And before I'm in Christ, my representative is Adam. My God is the little g God of this world, Satan. And the only thing that I can do is what they tell me to do, I have no power. Um, and, and Satan uses the world system and our flesh against us to cause us to sin and rebel against God more and more. More and more and more and more, and isn't that the story of the nation of Israel? It wasn't just a little bit of rebellion, it was all, all the way, full send on rebellion, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, that's who we were before Christ. We were full send on rebellion. Either we thought we didn't need to follow God's law and we did whatever we wanted or we thought he doesn't, I don't need his son and I can pay the debt myself. Either way, I'm just all out in rebellion. And so that's the federal headship. I'm in Adam. I'm broken at the core. I have no life within me. I'm spiritually dead. I cannot please God. I have zero power to defeat sin. I am just a mess and what Christ does is he dies for the mess, that song that we sang, he finds us as we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He raises from the dead and he draws us into life and now we have a new head. His name is Jesus Christ. God is our father. Remember what, remember in the book of John where he looks at the Pharisees and he says, your father is the devil. And all he does is lie, so all you're doing is lying. I'm paraphrasing, that's what, that's what John said to the Pharisees. Your father is the devil. Your representative before God is Adam. You are totally broken. And Jesus dies for all that, redeems us with his blood, pays for us with his blood, and makes us now his children. God becomes our father, Jesus becomes our head, and we are new creations in him. says it this way a little bit later the first man was from the earth a man of dust the second man is from heaven like the man of dust so are those who are of the dust like the man of heaven so are those who are of heaven in other words who your leader is is what you do Um, you do what your leader does And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Go back to Genesis one more time with me. God creates us and he creates us man and woman in his image. But we do not retain the perfection of that image. Actually, what this verse tells us is that in Adam, we take on the image not of God, but of Adam. We bear his image. We bear the image of the rebeller. We bear, we bear the image of, of the transgressor. We bear the image of the iniquitous. We bear the image of the sinner. And Christ comes in and he crushes that image and makes us now in the image of the man of heaven. We become partakers of the divine nature. This is an unbelievable transfer that's going on, guys. Do you know it? Have you experienced it? Do you want it? That's the invitation of the gospel. Now I want to finish, well, one one more thing here. Uh, The greatness of Christ has transferred you from death to life. Romans Romans 7, Paul, he recognizes it. He says, the very thing that I want to do, I don't do. The very thing that I don't want to do is what I end up doing. And then he says, what a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. He's saying, "I, I live in broken flesh and I can't seem to find victory. I don't want to be horrible to the people around me, but I keep doing it. I don't want to squander my money, but I keep doing it. I don't want, like fill in the blank with what you don't want, but you find yourself continuing to do it. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? There's a recognition that in our flesh, not yet redeemed, not yet in the new, the Already part of me is my spirit and my soul made alive that not yet has been giving, being given a body that has no sin. Paul says, while well, I'm in this body and it wants to sin, how do I win? And wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? And a lot of Christians think that's what Christianity is. They, they think I'm just a wretched person filled with sin and I, there's no way I'm gonna win. But you gotta read Romans 8. He says, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So again, it's a question of who's in charge? Me and my flesh, which is ultimately subjected to Satan? Or is it Christ in his spirit giving me righteousness. Who is leading? That's the question. Because we do what our leader does. Has the greatness of Christ transferred you from death to life? And then I want to finish with this. Here it is. Uh, Look at this verse one more time. Hebrews 2, 9. So that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Have you ever been to somebody's house and what they're serving, you go, oh boy, I guess I'm going to eat it because I don't want to be rude. <laughs> you ever done this? I, never happened to me. Um, all of your houses are amazing. Um, I'm just kidding. But have you ever been in that situation? You know, somebody says, here's a warm plate of death. But that's what we had coming to us over here. We had a warm plate of death. And Jesus steps in and he drinks the cup. That's what the cup is about. He says, not my will, Father, but yours. This cup is bitter. It's terrible. It's going to cause so much pain between us. But because I love them, I'll drink it. He steps into that dining room and he drinks it. He takes it. And so we don't have to. That is the point. And look at this, is, it's by his grace, it's a gift from God that Jesus has tasted death for us. He suffered death. And because of that, isn't he crowned with glory and honor? Like Jesus has always been God, he's always, he'll always be God. He's always been good and kind and loving and just and fair. He's always been powerful and present, he's always been aware of everything. He's always been that. He will always be that. But when Christ went to the cross, somehow God got better. God became grander. God became amazingly more to us. And that's what Paul says in Philippians, that at the name of Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess because he suffered for us. He is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And so my question, for all of us, do you feel powerful? Why? See, because if I feel like I've got it under control and I have it together because I am enough, because I'm on the self-improvement road, because I have good character, because I, and I feel like I can overcome life's challenges because I can figure it out. It won't work. The only way to be powerful is to have God's power in us. The only way to be great in God's eyes is to be low before him, right? Right? That's the only way to achieve greatness in life is to be low before God. And so I I, I view myself rightly. I, I know the mess that I was and I know the issues that I had and some of them still plague me, but by God's grace, he's defeating them more and more day by day because I find myself looking to him, not what's culture say, what's popular, what's wise in our age. No, you're the source of wisdom. What do you want me to know? You're the source of love. How can I love better? You're the source of truth. How can I share your truth better? How can I live your truth better? Right? Why, why am I going somewhere else? I have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Why am I going somewhere else? And this is the tug and pull that we find ourselves in as believers. The, the tug towards going back to the old ways listening to the old man, paying attention to the culture the way that we used to, thinking that we can find answers in human wisdom. That's the tug in religious performance. But Christ is pulling us the other way. He has already seated us with him in the heavenly places and recognizes us as complete in his son. But in our incompletion, in the already but not yet, we just... Right? Do you feel the pull? And so I want to grab Jesus with both hands. Do you want to grab Jesus with both hands? They don't get one of my hands anymore. They can pull me by the coat, they can grab my shoe, whatever. But they don't get a hand anymore. And that's a decision you have to make. Because if you, you know, if you've got one foot in the world and one foot over here, you're going to find yourself just sinking this way. And so, I no, Jesus gets both hands. And I understand the tug's going to be over there. The flesh is going to guide me towards sin. The world is going to guide me towards rebelling against God. But I'm not going there. Why? Because Christ has tasted death for me. He suffered the death that I deserved. And he is crowned with glory and honor. He's worthy. So why would I spit in his face and tell him he's not? He's worthy. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guide each of us this morning to take another step of faith. That we would see how awesome you are. That we would see how awesome your son Jesus is. That we would see the unbelievable goodness of his works on our behalf. The cost that he paid. The cup that he drank. The suffering that he endured the breaking of his body. And that all of that was done so that I could be freed. So that the master who had me chained up would no longer have control of me. He would no no longer have right over me. Your son Jesus has accomplished that and so much more. I thank you that he rose from the dead and that he gives us new life, that he is seated with you in the heavenly places and that somehow you see me there too. And so God, I pray for each Christian this morning that if they've got a foot in the world that they would just yank it out by your strength and in your power that they would say, the, the flesh doesn't get to call the shots anymore. The world system around me doesn't get to call the shots anymore. I trust the spirit of God and the word of God to allow me to bring glory to God. And for those this morning who have not trusted in your son Jesus, God will you move in them And guide them to trust you this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you responded to God this morning in that moment or in another moment, will you come talk to me? I wanna tell you what God has for you next. Um, And then for the rest of us that are believers, Will you pray for anybody that was maybe on the fence there? I don't know who it was, but will you pray for whoever was on the fence there? One of the things that really struck us as we were at the conference was a statement that was made by a guy named Mark Clark. And, um, you know, there's 100,000 people in the valleys around us, and I think about 8,000 of them have a church home. We were talking about putting a camera out here on the cross and pointing it at the road and just putting it on the screen and letting you see all the cars that drive by on Sunday morning, filled with people that need to hear the news. And so I pray God would spark revival in us as Christians. Don't see a car driving past you. Try and see the eyes. Stay in their lane. Don't don't do anything crazy. Try and see the eyes. Thanks for being here. Um, If you want to sign up for one of the things in the back, I encourage you to do that. Um, And then uh, there's so many things happening. Men, if you haven't come yet, I'm inviting you to Monday night tomorrow. I think the weather's going to be good. If I can buy tri-tip, I'll cook it. Um, If I can't, I'll make something else yummy. But we'd love to have you join us for the Gospel of Mark. Um, Thanks for being here.